let's just start and I'll tell you about thoughts I have about this afterwards. Let's just, we'll just get the, the conversation going. Does that sound good? Sure. Episode one, tentative title, International Park. I'm John Ramey with Sam Park, a podcast focused on foreign affairs and economics. Sam, I just was perusing the news today in preparation for our conversation, and I picked out six stories that seemed interesting to me, and I wanted to see if you had maybe your power rankings as well, and we can compare notes and then decide which ones we want to explore. Okay. So I've got the missile attack on Kiev, and we think related the missile strike in Poland. We've got Biden meeting with Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader. We've got the G20. We've got the Sharm el-Sheikh climate conference. FTX implosion, bankruptcy, and Trump declaring for his third run for the presidency. I know this is not a politics podcast, but I do feel like that has impact internationally. The FTX thing, I don't really know anything about crypto. Uh, to me, it's more that's more of an entertainment news story. All right. The missile strike in Poland. I listened to uh, the intelligence podcast from The Economist from today. They do this daily. And the latest conventional wisdom they are picking up is that the strike in Poland was from a Soviet or Russian made missile, but probably fired and misfired by the Ukrainians. Yeah, that's what I've heard also. Uh, and that's it. It's difficult for me to have any real opinion about whether that's true. Uh, I think it, it's, it sounds plausible. Uh, and, you know, there's quite a lot of missile defense systems that are being uh, deployed by the Ukrainians with some good effect, I might add. Uh, and so it, it could easily work out that that's the case, which, you know, aside from the tragic loss of life, uh, would be probably the best uh, the least alarming scenario, that is, right? Because it wouldn't necessitate any sort of even consideration of what sort of retaliation against Russia might need to be deployed. Uh, so if that's the way it turns out, uh, I think that would kind of be a relief, again, apart from innocent people having been killed. But it, even if you're the Polish government, I think you have to have anticipated for a number of months now, that something like this could happen, uh, especially it's so close to the border. I'm sure you've seen the maps. You know, it's just over the border from Ukraine. And considering the, especially the number of missiles that the Russians have been launching at Ukraine in the past couple of days, uh, it would be surprising if none of those missiles uh, or any of the counter uh, uh, air defense missiles that the Ukrainians were firing in response, uh, misfired somehow, right? And so, uh, again, it's terrible that people die, but as far as I know, it's only two people. Yeah, that's what uh, I've said. And so if that's the case, uh, uh, we should be kind of relieved, I think, that, uh, that it doesn't seem uh, to necessitate any sort of escalation against the Russians, which is something that, the West has seemed to want to avoid. And also this is the, the fact that this missile landed in NATO soil is 
sounds scary at first kind of glance or reading or hearing about it, but because we think this is not a deliberate provocation by the Russians that, yes, it, it it's relieving, but it also threatens to obscure the fact that Russia is bombarding Kiev with missiles in a way that we haven't seen since the start of the war. And, oh, not just Kiev, but the whole country. Actually. Right. right. And, yeah. and, it's, it, and it kind of plays into uh, a renewed Ukrainian call to the West for additional missile defense systems, right? And if this turns out to be a misfired kind of old Soviet era intercept missile intercept situation from Ukraine, it kind of makes their point for them, right? It does. I, I would also say, though, that uh, the provision of military assistance to Ukraine thus far has been a very dynamic process. It started with, for instance, Javelin anti-tank missiles right at the very beginning. Uh, and then it escalated towards more sort of air defense systems, uh, 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 different kinds of rocket launchers and things like this. As the sort of tactics of the Russians have shifted uh, month by month. So I don't expect that that's a process that's going to halt anytime soon. If, uh, di- if different kinds of uh, systems need to be deployed or some in greater proportion to others uh, in comparison with the way they have been, uh, I expect that that will occur up to a point, for instance. I don't think that there's going, you know, I think we've, we're some distance at any rate from seeing uh, aircraft, uh, you know, actual fighter planes being uh, uh, provided in any great quantity or in uh, uh, that is more advanced uh, uh, planes that, that uh, might be deployed. That would, I would think, be some ways off. But I'm not, uh, my knowledge of military matters is rather rudimentary. So I wouldn't care to comment upon something like that much further than I have thus far. Uh, one other wrinkle to this that I thought was interesting was Latvia's defense minister has floated the idea that NATO should extend its missile shield to cover parts of Western Ukraine. Is that escalation, a missile shield extension? Well, I wouldn't say so. And I don't think the Latvian defense minister is calling the shots here. I just was like, oh, that's interesting. And, you know, uh, someone like the Latvian defense minister would be exactly the sort of person you'd expect to say such a thing. It's not his call. So no, it is. it's no and different than you or me suggesting the Rams bench their quarterback. Exactly. But in, uh, for instance, if you or I were the Latvian defense minister, we actually could be expected and in fact should say that something just exactly like that. Right. Uh, I don't think that's at all surprising. Uh, but as to in terms of whether it's an escalation, that's kind of up to the Russians. Right. I mean, uh, if they see it as an escalation, it's kind of difficult to argue with them saying, no, it's not. Right. Uh, if they're going to react to it as if it is an escalation, that's just what they're going to do. Uh, it's interesting. The Polish aren't calling for that. Well, the, the, you know, the Polish have a, a sort of different situation. They share a, a, a border with Belarus uh, and right. a very uh, small border with the uh, the. Russian exclave of Kaliningrad. But apart from that, they don't uh, share a large immediate border with Russia itself. Uh, they're in a very different sort of position from someone like Latvia, uh, who, uh, again, their border isn't very long, but they're a very small country. So to them, it's a large portion of whatever foreign borders they do have. Right. But still, Poland's right next to Ukraine. 
Yes. You, could, you couldn't blame the Polish or be like, hey, if the Polish were like, hey, maybe you just, just shoot down missiles that get a certain amount west in Ukraine. I guess. Because uh, that is a, that's a, that's that's they, a long border. So, I mean, that might happen. Yeah. I think they so far feel that uh, they're far enough away from Russia proper that they might not need to weigh in on this. As Just yet. Right. right. So the G20, right? Latvia, not in the G20. No. Right. When we were going to all the country. Right. Exactly. And I was actually I looked at the roster, Sam, because that's my training as a sports journalist. <clears throat> Who's even on this G20 team? It's the 20 largest economies in the world. And I guess right. I hadn't really considered who the biggest economies are in the world past okay, maybe the top five or six. to you on the list? Argentina. Okay. Actually, that's kind of surprising to me. Uh, but they're, they're not a small country. No. Uh, they have a lot of people. Uh, and uh, uh, that's, I guess, maybe less surprising to me than it is to you. But, I'm, yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought they'd be in the top 20. But, they, well, I mean, I'm not looking at the rankings. Where are they, like 15? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm looking at them alphabetically. Okay, I just, uh, yeah. No, I don't know where they are within the 20, but they're top 20, right? Yeah, I would imagine they're, they're uh, bottom quartile. Sure. Sure. Uh, but like New Zealand's not on there. And then you go, well, there's only 4 million people there. Sure. I suppose that's not a top 20 economy. Well, um, but I think it, part of it is like so much of prosperity uh, it deals with trade, right? right? It's difficult for New Zealand to trade with anybody. They're far away. They're right. so far. They're so remote. Whereas Argentina has, you know, neighbors all around yeah. them that they trade with on a regular basis. Australia, right. despite being an island, is on there because they're a ginormous island and they're closer to trading partners. For yeah, example. and they are closer. And they also are, uh, are an enormous producer of raw materials, coal, iron ore, things like this. I mean, that, that's, uh, uh, again, it's about trade. They do so much trade in raw materials, especially with China and the rest of Asia. Um, the other thing is, uh, who, who all is on here? France, Germany, Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Those then the all the biggest economies in the right, Eurozone. Right. But also the European Union. Right. Like I, I saw the UK was on there and I said, well, that makes sense because they're not in the UK or not in the EU. But you've got EU on there plus France, Germany and Italy. Yeah, that doesn't seem fair. Right. That intrigued me. The other thing is, you know, Russia's on there. China's on there. India's on there. So they're having this summit in where are they Indonesia right now. Indonesia is yes. also one of the 20. Yes. And um you know, they're having a, a global economic summit in the middle of a war. And they had this missile. Well, I don't know if it's a crisis, but this missile story about Poland blow up. And there's actually a picture uh, in the Times of London. And it's all these leaders like, you know, Macron and Biden and uh, the new uh, UK prime minister, Rishi. They're all I think ex- that was a, a sort of G7 sub meeting, right? right, where they gathered all the leaders of the G7 uh, to talk inside of the G20, right? Which, you know, seven is less than 20, right? So, you know, they were all happened to be there. Do we know what they're even talking about apart from like how to get on side with regard to the Russian war? And, and oh, I, a lot of different things. I mean, uh, I do feel like there's been some consensus within the 20 to kind of say this is bad and Russia should stop. Even China and India have kind of signed off on some verbiage on that. To varying degrees, yes. Uh, and uh, I think... They talk about a lot of things every year. Trade is always a big topic. 
international security. Uh, there, you know, there until relatively recently, there used to be a lot about uh, Islamic terrorism uh, and things like this. So it's whatever the big uh, global issues of the day might happen to be. They, obviously, there was a lot about COVID nineteen recently. You know, if they, they, you know, when they were having their virtual G twenty meetings. Uh, but it, it's not uh, isolated to any given topic on an institutional level. It whatever might be uh, happening at any given time. For instance, there's all it's already intersecting with the COP twenty seven in Egypt, right? Which is all about climate change. Uh, but it's not like they're not going to talk at all about climate change at the G20. It's just that there's already a separate meeting happening about that. So they'll probably just have some perfunctory working groups about it and, you know, but mainly pass that ball on to COP27. Because China's at the G20 thing, meeting summit, and the United States is there, it makes sense when you read about it coming down. Oh, Biden and Xi are going to meet. Of course. Now, these things don't just happen, though. It's not like they bumped into each other at the bar and said, hey, let's have a three and a half hour summit. Oh, no, there was a a rather intricately choreographed meeting between them. Sure. So here's my thing. Biden had to have been planning this meeting before knowing what the outcome of the midterms would be. Yes, that's exactly right. So so that's intriguing to me because Biden didn't necessarily know he was going to go into this summit with that kind of political wind in his sails. Right. And he caught a lucky break. I think that we have to acknowledge that. Uh, but it's, it's but he was still willing to take the meeting anyway, or he felt he but had he, to or he, whatever. He would have had to take it. It's not a question of whether he's willing to take it. Uh, for instance, it's moderately embarrassing to Vladimir Putin that he's not at the G20. Uh, he did not go. Uh, and we can understand why. But for Somebody who no seriously why why is being very important. Why isn't he there? Is he easy? He's got his war too. He's too busy botching yeah, I, war. I mean, that's mainly the reason is that he knows he would have to get an earful from a lot of different people okay. from this from the stage. Uh, and that's and, the kind of high school gossip I love about like international diplomacy because ultimately he, he doesn't want to take crap from his buddies in the G20 or his, you know, whatever colleagues. His counterparts, yes. Yeah. But one thing, I, I, let's get back up a bit here. For instance, as you say, Biden kind of caught a lucky break and that mm-hmm. his party did great in uh, in the midterm elections. which Great, he have, great relative to expectations. That's right. He, which, but he couldn't, like you say, he couldn't have known that was going to happen. He had every reason, in fact, to expect that it would not happen. Uh, but it's not just that he ha- his party happened to do well. Uh, as flawed as American democracy is, it's light years ahead of democracy in China, for instance. Right. Uh, and so because he made the preservation of democracy a central pillar of his message to his own population in these elections, and he got the good result, uh, it's a sort of victory lap for democracy itself or American style democracy itself not just for him personally. Uh, and th- so those two factors actually interlock, right? Big, by positioning himself as the champion of American-style democracy, and then to have that message be the triumphant message of a very democratic, albeit flawed, electoral process, in nothing of the kind happens in China, right? Xi Jinping, as we know, just was basically had 
the entirely foregone conclusion of him serving a third term, which everybody knew he was going to do. Nobody, there were no surprises at all in his uh, uh, periodic uh, political pageant, we might say. The big thing is Biden said afterwards that uh, he was confident a Chinese invasion of Taiwan was not imminent. That's good. It's just a net good when the two semi-adversarial powers have the two leaders talking to one another, right? Well, not just that. For instance, uh, uh, in August, I believe, was when Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. Right. At that point, the Chinese, in retaliation, cut off a lot of high-level diplomatic contacts with the United States uh, on climate, for instance, and a number of other areas. These ties were restored in the aftermath of Biden's meeting with Xi, and that's good, right? We need to be talking to China about a number of different issues. Uh, and uh, the uh, since that rupture only took lasted about three months, it seems, uh, that's, I think, uh, uh, a good uh, outcome. I think, again, Biden's been so fortunate. It's not just that uh, the Democrats did well in the midterms, but right after that, uh, the inflation report came out, which was showed which showed that inflation is seems to be moderating at least in the most recent month, contrary to some economists' expectations. Uh, and then right after that, the Ukrainians retook Kherson, uh, which was a big deal. And so uh, that's uh, uh, he caught a lot of he, he sort of had a lucky streak all in the space of just a few days. One thing I thought that was interesting, like the Chinese have their after meeting talking points. Biden obviously has his and, and the U- U.S. And they're different. And they're very different. Right. Like, you know, Biden's message is United States democracy versus Chinese authoritarianism. Right. That's that's his paradigm, which I think you and I and most ra- rational people in the West would agree with. The Chinese talking points afterwards were uh, it's about a, he's, they framed it somehow as it was um, American style democracy versus Chinese style democracy, which right. is a fig leaf. And I think I just, that's right. I, I just think it's funny. Like it is the People's Republic, right? Like they do. There is this tradition in 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 all the communist states of like, no, no, this is democracy. The workers have voted for this authoritarianism, right? Where yeah, but never but, mind, it's a one-party state. Right, and she just adds terms to his, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sham, but it's funny, they still want the language of that. They do and they don't. For instance, uh, I think the American statement said something like, well, we're both opposed, both of our countries are opposed to the Russians using a nuclear yes. uh, Huge. weapon in Ukraine. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the Chinese statement said, we're both concerned about the situation in Ukraine. Now, that's great that you're concerned, right. but uh, you know that that's a considerable discrepancy in uh, in the after-action reports of the of the two countries concerned. And that's not the only. For instance, China uh, is a very large country. It's a very important country, uh, and more so uh, today than at any other time in our lifetimes. And so. Uh, Western media tend to cover it as if in the same way that they cover other large, important countries. The problem is almost all of those other countries are Western countries. And China is not like those other countries in many important ways. Not so even like, like Russia. Every, uh, story in the Western media about China on any topic of real importance 
should start off with a sort of disclaimer and say, we don't really know, right? Uh, and uh, I think that would just help the public understand it. Well, that's because, like you and I talking about what happened with Hu Jintao. You said exactly, we'll right? never know in our lifetimes. We'll, yeah, and and it could have, and it could be that he just had a health episode. In uh, five days earlier, there were reports saying that Hu Jintao was not looking well, right? That he seemed to need help getting around. So it could just be that that's all it was. But all we can do is sit here and say, okay, was this part of the intricate choreography of the Party Congress, which is you know famous, uh, or was it a breakdown? in the intricate choreography. And we'll never know the answer, almost certainly. Uh, and so, for instance, when we cover other countries, someone's going to go off the record and say, this is what actually happened, right? right? Uh, that almost never happens in China. Uh, and so our whole experience of hearing about them uh, is skewed uh, in a way that I think people don't really realize. And perhaps even the, the, the journalists covering it may not even be fully aware. Just to illustrate that point, if if Biden has a summit, even with Putin, but certainly like with the French or whatever, after the fact, people close to the administration, air quotes, or, you know, a senior official who wished to not be named will then say what really happened that nobody wants to like relay on the record. Right. Yeah. And someone else might argue with that person. Right. Right. And 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 journalists from both countries or can speak to officials from both countries. Right. Like there's there's a um, a dragnet of fact finding that occurs yeah, in Western journalism. Yeah. Also. Right. Uh, which that we is just totally non-existent. Yeah. Right. In our relationship with China. And that uh, it's uh, again, that doesn't mean we should just give up. Right. And say, oh, well, we'll never know. But no, but it should at least be upfront about saying there's only so much we can know. For instance, even in, the, in a country like Putin's Russia, uh, there are people who are speaking out and saying, you know, this is going badly, blah, blah, blah. Now, granted, most of them are even more hawkish than Putin himself. Right. But there at least is some public discussion of policy from divergent points of view. Again, you will never see this from the Chinese side, or almost never. I shouldn't say absolutely no. Um, okay, Trump. Well, I mean, I could go so, on about this for well, a very long time. And, and we might, because it's podcasting, man. There's no... Sure. Yeah. I think... Uh, uh, for, I mean, number one, his the potential of him having a second term as president impacts the war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's the number one global. That's I think the number that's one, right. That's uh, the number one but, international but, situation that's impacted by that. Right. Yeah. Nothing, but the good thing about that is that it'll be, a, you know, another two and a half years, even if he wins before right. he could, do by which time Russia may have had to give up. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so uh, for instance, there was some, uh, fear that if the Republicans did very well in the midterms, that there could be a cutoff or at least a, a dramatic reduction. I was concerned about that. Yeah. And that seems almost vanishingly unlikely at this point, which I'm happy to say. Does it really affect our relationship with China? He seems a diminished figure just in very broad terms. And I think that's probably true no matter where you live in the world. Mm. Uh, so 
for instance, someone like Putin, who is, we imagine at least, very hopeful that Trump could return to power. Uh, I'm not saying that this is the reason he unleashed this enormous missile barrage on Ukraine right now. I think he would have done that anyway. But uh, he's probably recalibrating his options on some level. And I think uh, that's probably true of, of a number of other world leaders right now, uh, is that if they think it's less likely that Trump is going to return to power, uh, uh, they might have to adjust their expectations and calculations. I know we're not going to be focusing on politics, but I just want to point out that as much as the GOP elite would love Ron DeSantis to succeed, Donald Trump is the head of the GOP as the standard bearer. I don't really know if DeSantis is all that. I don't know if he's sufficiently charismatic enough to, to win a nomination. Um, in a national campaign. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm I skeptical. What you're saying. I'm skeptical. I'm just, I'm going on the record on November 16th, 2022. I'm not, I'm not buying that. He's that viable. Okay. Uh, Doesn't mean Trump isn't diminished. Not well, saying that, but no. But what I would say in response to that is that I don't think I'm a qualified judge as to what counts as charismatic to Republican primary that's voters. A, that's a great point. Okay. Uh, yeah. I think that, uh, <laughs> Yeah. One of the the main sources of appeal for Republican voters for Trump uh, was that he was an asshole. Uh, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why DeSantis is seen as his primary successor, is that of all the possible. He has no problem being an asshole. To yes, liberals. He, yeah. is, he gives you that. If you're a, a, a one point. of the one of the primary voters who supported Trump, he gives you the asshole factor that you love. Uh, more than anybody, Glenn Youngkin, Nikki Haley, anyone, any. Yeah, of way more. You're right. Right. And uh, and he's only in his 40s. Uh, if I was him, DeSantis, yeah, that is, I'd wait. Uh, I would have people close to me, uh, maybe not right away, but in more and more in the coming year, making appearances in the media and saying things along the lines of crazy old loser. Right. Uh a, because those are true things, and B, because it's like, look, I'm an asshole too. Right? And so uh, if you like that uh, and you think that Trump might be on his way out, I'm right here, okay? Uh, we'll see. I mean, it, it's so early. Uh, I think that uh, I'm glad that the, the response across the board to Trump's announcement has just been underwhelmed for the most part. People are like, eh, whatever. Uh, I couldn't even watch it on TV because I don't have cable, right? Uh, even Fox News cut away. Yeah, uh, only after I mean, after an hour, right? I mean, uh, uh, but an hour, right? Why, you know, you know, fifteen minutes, maybe, maybe twenty, right? That's all you need. You have to stand there for an hour. But again, it's so early in this process that you know, if there's no real. Nothing to be gained from gaming this out at this point. No. But I would say DeSantis, asshole. That's his that's his appeal. That'll do it for this week's episode of International Park for Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. We'll talk to you next time.